The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Middle East Forum Talk Radio with my producer Marilyn Stern in studio after a three-week hiatus. We are back. And it's a very exciting week, both here in Philadelphia, Maryland, and also in the Middle East. We have the results of the Israeli election to go over. We have corona spreading from Morocco to Iran and, of course, around the rest of the world, or the COVID-19, that's the appropriate uh, moniker for this virus. Pandemic contagion, uh, scaring everyone through Europe, North America, the Middle East, and everywhere else. But maybe we can bring a little bit of perspective on that and to... um, you know, not necessarily make a public health announcement here, but to give some analysis on how it's affecting Middle Eastern countries. That's our segment that we can delve into. We also have Benjamin Baird with the latest results on how Islamists influence Super Tuesday and the election results that took place yesterday. A resounding, crushing defeat of the Sanders wave that everyone was so afraid of, at least people who were involved in Middle East policy circles were afraid of. And Biden now having taken a majority of the states which were up for grabs on Super Tuesday, including, I think, eking out a very small percentage yet winning in Texas. That was significant because of the Latino base. And that's sort of uh, what had uh, T.O. Bernie or uh, Uncle Bernie, as they call Bernie Sanders, um, at least some Hispanic voters in California backing him there. And we also have at the bottom half of the hour... Amnesty International joining us to speak about the latest in human rights abuses coming out of the planning, preparation, and in some cases, execution of individuals involved in the Qatar World Cup 2022. This is a subject that we've spent a lot of time talking about on this program. As an organization, we've mentioned a lot about Qatar, especially in how it's been able to sort of buy its way out of uh, being shamed for these abuses. And and dare I say, I mean, we have bribery, we have human rights abuses, we have labor abuses, we have a slavery caste system, we have rampant violation of of the LGBT community, LGBTQIA community. Uh, We have so many inklings of nefariousness that's coming from that very small peninsular country. Why the games are still going on, I don't know. But I'm going to start the countdown here to the cancellation of the Qatari World Cup 2022. And that's going to be part of our mission here on this program. Now my email is going to get hacked and everybody's going to see everything that I've been doing all around the world. That, that's, that's great. You know, that's what happens if you cross the uh, men in Doha. Also some significant news over the last few days. Afghanistan, not necessarily within our remit of the Middle East. It's more sort of a Central Asia issue. But the U.S. now brokering a peace agreement with the Taliban, of all places, in Doha. The uh, Qataris have been providing you know, respite and a little bit of shelter to the Taliban for the past 18 years, or even before that, they had a diplomatic mission there. But what we saw was that um, within 72 hours, I think this took place a few hours ago, there was a U.S. airstrike against a Taliban position. So much for a peace accord where your uh, enemy is planning attacks against your forces in country, and at the same time, you have to respond with air power. But the one topic I do want to focus on before we bring Ben Baird on to the program is the results of the Israeli election. The third election in one year. We had uh, March and April of 2019. 
We had September of 2019. And then we had March of 2020. I cannot remember the last time that a democracy ebbed and flowed in such a smooth and efficient way. Everyone is saying, at least from what I've been reading in Israeli media reports, oh no, it's another election, we have to do this again, we're wasting billions of shekels on this. But my take is, is this is healthy for the country to be able to have leadership races which are not rooted in violence, where there's no coup d'etats which are going on, where we don't have to wait three or four years for there to be uh, governmental paralysis to be able to reach a decision. They said, okay, we're not happy with the results. We're going to vote again. We're going to see what's happening with the, uh, the, the third time the Knesset's going to come around. And it looks like Benjamin Netanyahu's block of seats, which was at 51 or 52, you have to have 60 plus one seats to be able to get a majority in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, and then to be able to form a government. But Netanyahu slowly but surely has been escalating the amount of seats that are in his blocks from some 52 to 53, then it was 56, now he's at 58. And there's talk about rampant defections from the center left to join his block, as some of the more absurd suggestions, that um, it will just do a 30-second primer on the election for a second. So we have the Likud, which is Israel's ruling party. That's the party that Netanyahu has been part of for his entire political career, and also which he's led for the past 11 years since he became prime minister in 2009 for the second time then, now for potentially the fifth time. Um, and then the main opposition party is the Blue and White Party. The Likud is supported by ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties and those that are considered to be part of the settler movement or those who are more on the religious Zionist, religious nationalist level. And the Blue and White's natural allies are coming from the Labor Party, those who are for socialist Zionism. Uh, not democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders Zionism, but that of the uh, flavor of David Ben-Gurion, the founder of the country. So three unique things happen here. Number one, the Labor Party and Merits, the two parties on, on the left side of the spectrum, left of the Blue and White Party, are um, basically taken out. I mean, they've gone from a high of some 30 to 40 seats in their system that they are now left with six seats. I mean, this is the uprooting of the labor movement, which was ruling Israel for the first 20, 25 years of the country. Now they've been reduced to nothing more than I think, I mean, if we were to do the math, what, like 4%? Of the Knesset, I mean, if you look at the overall, it's actually not four percent. If you if you look at the um, the the results here, five point eight three percent of Israel has voted for the Labor Party. That's two hundred sixty five thousand votes compared to the Likud, which was their traditional, you know, enemy. The Likud got one point three four million votes. I mean, we have seen this is the end of the Netanyahu political surge going from the left. The last time there was a prime minister from the center left was Ehud Olmert when he left the Likud party, was head of the Kadima party from 2006 to 2009. But now we see that the party has surged on the right and they're no longer um, in a position to really have too much of any influence. Now, the next thing that we have to look at is these defections that we mentioned earlier. We have the Likud putting stories in the Israeli press of one, a member of the Labor Party, Orly Levy Abakasis, whose father, David Levy, was a Likud foreign minister for Netanyahu's first government in the 90s, saying, if you leave your party that you joined for this election on the left, join us. 
will make you a minister and will make your father president of the country. It's a pretty good deal. You lost the election, but your dad's going to be president. I mean, only in Israeli politics they think of these kind of deals. The next defection deal that they have is that in the last 72 hours of the election, we found that there was a member of Knesset that was um, alleged to have said bad things about the head of her party, the Blue and White Party, Benny Gantz. So now there is this allegation that the Israeli press is putting around saying that if this woman, who was allegedly saying bad things about her party leader, does not defect from the Blue and White Party, she'll have to uh, have these tapes played on air. And God forbid, who knows what, what she said. Um, now, the last thing which came out, and so, so, so if we have 58 seats in, in the center-right block, then uh, we have to also see that there is only two or three defections which are needed to give Netanyahu a solid, albeit razor-thin majority in the Knesset. And the last thing which has come across, which I find to be fascinating, is the rise of power of the Arab list. This um, group of, this amalgamation of uh, socialist and Islamist and Arab democratic, that means basically non-Zionist, yet they're more involved, and communists. So socialists, Islamists, and communists, oh my, have gotten together. They've raised their stakes in this election. They've gone from some eight or nine seats when they all had different parties together now they're the third largest party in the Knesset by uniting. They have some 15 or 16 seats. We'll see what happens with the final results that come out. Now, a lot of people are shaking their head and they're saying, how could we have allowed for this, you know, um, you know, Faustian bargain to have taken place amongst all these Arab political parties and let them get so much power? I mean, we may have an Arab head of the opposition in Israel. I'm an Oded, a head of the party. Uh, which has traditionally been for the uh, antagonist Zionist party, whoever was in power there. But you know what I say in return to that? I think that this is silver lining in them getting more votes. And that's that their community is going to hold them more accountable now. I mean, if you look at the disparity between Jewish political power and Arab political power in Israel, or Israeli Jewish political power and, and Arab political power in Israel, the Arabs have always said, we're on the odd man out. We don't have enough seats. We can't represent this. But if their rejection continues, continues, I see those votes going back to the Labor Party and the other parties on the left that the Arabs had traditionally voted for in their split with the United Arab List. After these messages, Ben Baird. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember 
the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Top of the hour with Ben Baird, the director of the Counter-Islamist Grid Program at the Middle East Forum and the deputy director of our Islamist Watch Project with the latest on Islamist influence, or perhaps, Ben, dare I say, the reduction of their influence in the Democratic Party after Super Tuesday. What's your take on the top races and the effects that they had? Uh, sure. Well, you know, they didn't have as much effect as they maybe would have planned on. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with uh, Buttigieg withdrawing at the last minute at the 11th hour uh, from the nomination, from the nomination uh, which in turn uh, caused many centrist voters to go with uh, Joe Biden. But had Buttigieg been in there, I think you may have seen uh, the Muslim vote have a much larger effect on uh, Super Tuesday uh, primary elections. Um, but, you know, there was there was still some uh, areas where you can look at polit- Islamist political organizing as having an effect in that election, uh, especially in places like Texas, where uh, where uh, Biden and Sanders, Sanders being the uh, candidate of choice among Islamists, where they uh, essentially split the vote uh, and Sanders did much better than he was expected to do. Uh, we also saw previous to Super Tuesday uh, Islamists having an effect in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. So uh, I think we've seen that they uh, are effective at political organizing and get out the vote drives. And I think we'll see that continue for the rest of the primaries, especially as we get into the general election. So talk to me, what kind of uh, influence machinery have American Islamists built up since the election of Donald Trump? Sure. So they've been extremely politically active. Um, you can just look at their voter registration drives uh, as an example of a success for Islamists. Uh, since 2016, uh, there's been a 20% increase in Muslim voter registration. You know, in previous years, they haven't been as politically active as we're seeing right now. And much of that is due to Islamist organizations going out there and holding uh, voter registration drives. But it's not just that. Uh, building up to Super Tuesday on the day of, for instance, the Council on American Islamic Relations held robocalls to Muslim Americans targeting Muslim American candidates in, uh, you know, states like Alabama, Arkansas, Texas, Massachusetts, Minnesota, uh, states with Muslim, you know, with pretty robust Muslim populations uh, to try to sort of talk uh, Muslims into getting out to vote. They also had a public service announcement that sort of talked about the importance of voting uh, and, and primaries and, and caucuses. Uh, and, you know, this, this is all building up on, on how active groups like CARE have been throughout the election year. You know, they not only are they holding uh, voter registration drives, but they're, they're sort of uh, pushing out straw push polls 
where they, uh, you know, these are highly partisan polls, which uh, are basically pointing Muslim voters in a direction to support their candidates of choice, which at this moment is Bernie Sanders. What is the appeal that Islamists see in Bernie Sanders? Why, why him? Uh, right. So you wouldn't think Bernie Sanders being a uh, 70-something-year-old uh, you know, Jewish uh, socialist Democrat would appeal to Muslim voters. But there's several things they see in, in Bernie Sanders that uh, they find appealing. Um, you know, number one, he has eight Muslim Americans on his campaign. Uh, his campaign manager, Fayez Shakir, is a Muslim American. Um, but one of the main issues that many Islamists support him for is his stance on the Palestinian, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, For instance, there's many Arab voters who have voted for him who said that the Palestinian issue was number one for them, and that's why they supported him. You know, he's been on on record leveraging military aid to Israel based on the humanitarian situation in the Palestinian territories. He, uh, you know, has said that he believes in giving aid to Hamas, uh, he has morally equivocated, uh, you know, the terrorist state in Gaza with the government in Israel, which is, of course, the only democracy in the Middle East and America's closest ally. Um, he's referred to Benjamin Netanyahu as a racist and a supremacist. So, you know, of course, that appeals to Islamists. Uh, but there's also something else we're seeing, which is the younger generation of of Islamists who, you know, they they simultaneously embrace social liberalism, and religious orthodoxy. This is something that uh, Islamist Watch director Sam Westrup has coined the term theoprogressives to describe them. Uh, But, you know, what we're seeing is Muslim social justice activists who believe in his uh, redistributist policies um, and somehow find a way of making those policies work with their with what are really contradictory religious views. Uh, but these Islamists tend to look at some of the uh, theological precedents in the religion and try to justify, you know, they try to say that Muhammad, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, oversaw a state welfare projects and believed in minimum wage. And they look at things like, uh, you know, the, the mandatory donations, Islamic tithing, as sort of a powerful redistributive tool, which is in line with uh, Bernie Sanders' policies. So, you know, sort of they've been a, many younger Islamists and, and indeed Muslims have found uh, ways to, uh, to let their ideology mesh with that of Bernie Sanders. So I see that there really has been this drawing of uh, similarities, and, and I'm sure that there's been some arguments which have been made in discussions in mosques around America about why Bernie Sanders is the candidate. I mean, and by the way, this isn't just about Bernie Sanders being the candidate of choice for American uh, Islamists. Sure. And, and I, I wouldn't make the argument that he's the candidate of choice for American Muslims, okay? Because I think sure. that um, a lot of people, and, and we're actually looking at this, I believe, you're looking at commissioning a study on the viewpoints of American Muslims. We can talk about that on another program when we have a better idea of what we're doing in-house. But um, mm-hmm. he is not just the candidate of choice for American Islamists, 
But the progressive movement has become the uh, home of American Islamist political action. Is, is that correct? And, and, and if so, is that because of this you know, wider uh, uh, bridge, if you will, to, to play with a, with, a, with a play on some words? That uh, is, is emblematic of another political movement, or, or is this just you know okay, Bernie's our guy, and we'll find somebody else next time? Um, no, I mean what you're saying is years ago uh, the Muslim vote was actually conservative. They supported President Bush uh, during the elections uh, in 2000, and, and less so in 2004. Uh, but over time, yes, they have joined with the progressive movement, and part of that is, uh, you know, being alienated with what they consider the forever wars in the Middle East. Um, you know, part of that is uh, is identifying with identity politics uh, and finding a home for grievance politics within the progressive movement. So it isn't just Bernie Sanders at all. Um, you know, there are other candidates, of course, uh, that are pandering to the Muslim vote. Uh, just yesterday, Elizabeth Warren pushed out an, an 8,000-word document titled uh, Honoring the Strength and Diversity of Muslim Communities, which really was a way of explaining how her platform uh, can work for Muslim voters. And, uh, you know, it was really kind of a, a rather patronizing report because uh, she tried to find ways to turn Muslims into victims at every turn. Uh, you know, she would cite African-American statistics when it was politically expedient to say so because, you know, 20% of Muslim Americans are African-American. Uh, she would cite uh, immigrant statistics when it worked for to turn Muslims into victims as well. Uh, even though we know that, you know, looking at raw black or immigrant statistics doesn't really match up or mesh with that of the Muslim American community. Um, so it really sort of took things out of context, but it, it was. In the end, it was all about turning Muslim Americans into victims, and which is rather patronizing uh, way to look at things. Now, but that, but that is indeed why many Muslims are moving towards the progressive movement. Uh, it's identity politics and it's foreign policy. Okay, so so that's you know in terms of the Democratic outreach, is there any Republican outreach going on to the American Muslim community, and and if so, what does it look like? Um, you know, there is there are a number of Muslim candidates. They're definitely in the vast minority. Um, you know, they're they're in some. You you see this especially at the state level. There are some Republican administrations. Uh, and state legislatures that reach out uh, to Muslim Muslims and have Muslim advisory boards uh, at the federal level and among the the Trump camp, you're really not seeing a organized play to uh, reach out to Muslim voters, though. And you think that's to the detriment of the party? I mean, my my thought would be that you know you make this point that Muslim American voters used to vote conservative. Now they've sure. switched over to to Bernie Sanders, uh, mm -hmm. and, and Bernie didn't really work out for, for for them that well, at least from yesterday. At least I mm -hmm. would assume. Sure. And uh, and and now we have this situation where um, 
many are without a political home. I mean, you know, the survey of with the Pew poll going back to 2011 or 2012 is is that only some like seven or eight percent of American Muslims identify as Islamists or have some affinity mm-hmm. of an Islamist background. Now we're, we're ten years on from then. I think that um, there's been other polling since then, but mm-hmm. uh, what can we do as a country or what can political institutions, we're not a political institution, we're a research organization, do to ensure that the plethora of opinions that are extant in the American Muslim community are accurately represented by the parties which are competing and vying for their votes. I mean, the one thing that I think of is Dahlia Al-Akidi in Minnesota, a American Muslim who's running against an American Islamist. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's about uh, ensuring Muslims that Islamists do not have their best interests in mind, and uh, whether that means, uh, you know, uh, extracting them from the progressive movement and uh, trying to show them that they can, in fact, that they do not have to look at America within an anti-Western, anti-American lens, that they do not have to be treated as uh, victims, and and they do not have to be looked at uh, within the lens of grievance pol- politics. Uh, I think that's the way that political institutions need to reach out to Muslim Americans. That That is what Dahlia Al-Akidi is doing uh, in Minnesota. And there are a number of other, uh, well, there's there are a few uh, state-level candidates who are running in the next, well, in the next few weeks here in places across the country who are sort of grasping onto the same narrative. Look, they don't want to make their religion the number one issue of their candidacy, and they don't want to make their identity the number one issue at all. They want to make uh, it about policy, and I think that's how all Muslims need to make uh that they need to, to sit with that platform rather than one that looks purely at, from a religious and identity uh, context. Right, and I mean, if we go back to the Johnson Amendment in the 60s, which prevented the pulpit from being used as a platform for political power. That's quite the tongue twister. Pulpit, power, political punditry. Uh, <laughs> you know, th- there's this uh, general prohibition on 501c3 organizations, specific uh, 501c3 nonprofit organizations, specifically those from the church, uh, synagogue, mosque, any religious variety from using their, uh, let's call them levers of influence over their congregations to try to um, take their tax beneficial status and then to use religion as a way in which to influence individuals to vote at the booths. I mean, I, I wouldn't want a Hasidic rabbi going out there and saying, listen, all of my uh, congregants vote for this guy or having a, a Baptist uh, minister saying, yo, he's anti-abortion. He can't vote for him. He, he's a uh, pro-abortion. He can't vote for him. Or having an imam say, you know, well, this is, uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders. He's a good guy. And then he's giving his katub on a Friday. He says, you vote for this sure. guy. I mean, you, you make a very, very good point. We must focus on policy. We must have debates on the essential issues which relate to the way in which this country moves forward for all Americans and not to grasp at the straws of identity politics that just divide us. Any closing thoughts on you know, the involvement of um, 
of uh, of of I, I would dare say more you know sectarian elements of of, of Islamists in this in this country. Um, or more appropriately, maybe the influence of religious figures as we move towards the general election now? I and mean, what's their involvement going to be? Are they going to get behind uh, Joe Biden if he wins? Does Sanders still have an opportunity to maybe pull this out in a brokered convention? What, what's your take? Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely going to see, uh, you know, elements of Islamists and, you know, other Muslim organizations and religious figures become involved. Uh, some will continue to support Bernie Sanders till the fateful end. Others will uh, move over to the Biden camp uh, because they definitely, you know, you definitely won't see any move over to Trump. Um, you know, in the general election, you uh, Muslims even even have greater uh, a greater chance of flipping states, uh, and that's just because of the way. Uh, the general election runs as opposed to primaries. Primaries in many states are not winner-take-all. And so the Muslim vote isn't as important then. But when you have Muslims who make up 1% to 2% of the population in some states, uh, if they come out in force and vote, uh, they can really flip the way that the state uh, votes uh, if it ends up being a razor-thin margin. So I think you'll see them become just as politically active in the general elections as they have been in the primaries. Benjamin Baird, Deputy Director, Islamist Watch, Middle East Forum. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Greg. Next, we have Felipe Nassif from Amnesty International after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. And we have a guest that I have been following for years and that I've been wanting to interview for the past year on a topic that has been um, very close to something that we've observed since we've put a conference on now. And this actually, this very topic, human rights and sport in the Middle East back in February of last year in Washington, D.C., 
And uh, I'm going to introduce him, and then hopefully we'll get into a thoughtful, uh, uh, mind-provoking, and intelligent discussion on the issue. Felipe Nassif is the Advocacy Director for the Middle East and North Africa branch at Amnesty International USA. Before coming to Amnesty, Felipe worked as the Executive Director in defense of Christians in the Middle East, where he advocated on behalf of persecuted religious minorities. Before that, he worked at the poverty-fighting organization Care USA, the Obama presidential campaign, and the White House as part of President Barack Obama's advance team. He's also worked for the mayor of Houston. Felipe, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Much appreciated. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Amnesty? What, what's a typical day at work look like? Absolutely. Well, uh, to say that our desk at Amnesty, the Middle East North Africa desk, is busy would be uh, an understatement. Um, it's uh, a part of the world where I handle all of our advocacy. So basically this uh, interface with the United States government on Middle East North Africa human rights issues. Um, you know, so, for example, in the past year, we've done a lot of work around Saudi arms sales. So United States selling weapons to Saudi Arabia the crisis in Yemen, where 11 million people are facing uh, conditions uh, of famine, um, or more recently, the protest movements in Iraq, in Lebanon, uh, in Algeria, and the civil war in Syria. So every day I get to the office uh, and I have a slew of reports I need to uh, brief members of Congress on or send to the State Department or the White House regarding human rights violations across the board uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Now, I'd say the work of Amnesty has both the curse and the blessing of being the ombudsman of human rights in the Middle East. I mean, just to give a little bit of background on me, I worked for an organization in Israel at the Ministry of Defense called the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories, responsible for all of the uh, management of civil relations between Israelis and Palestinians. Very active Amnesty branch in Israel. And there was a fair amount of complaints in the way in which they alleged that the Israelis treated Palestinians. And I get it. But at the same time, you're dishing out this criticism to the Lebanese government, Syrian government, mm-hmm. Qataris, the Saudis, the Egyptians. I mean, you guys get a lot of flack, but you know what? Somebody has to do it. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, I like to say that we go after everybody. So whenever I have, uh, to use the example you just used, you know, the Israeli government or, or Israeli organizations saying we specifically focus on Israel. I have a pile of violations that we have documented by the Palestinian Authority or by Hamas uh, that we've gone after those entities as well. Uh, you know, uh, for every time we're accused of being uh, not too hard or too soft on Iran, uh, I have a ton of documentation to show the exact opposite. Uh, you know, we, we are one of the oldest and the largest human rights organization on the planet. And like you said uh, just shortly ago, somebody has to do this work. There are violations across the board. We live in times uh, where human rights violations have become the norm in many countries, and we are there to make sure that it does not uh, remain a permanent uh, change. Right. And, and I think that if we were going to do Israel and the Palestinians and something like that, we'd have a very vibrant debate. Uh, and uh, and we can do that on another subject, but I really want to get into sure. something that I've been covering, um, and I don't know if you've had the opportunity to review some of our writings on the topic, which is the peninsular nation state of Qatar. And um, we can definitely expand on other Gulf Arab countries, which is fine, but I've been looking at this World Cup issue. Um, we mm-hmm. had a conference with a man named Jamie Fuller, 
who um, used to run Skins. It was a European uh, sports manufacturer company, and he was the founder of mm-hmm. the Foundation for Sports Integrity in the UK. Company shut down. Now he's doing some other work. A woman named Bonita Mercedes, who is um, an Australian journalist that was looking into corruption. And also we've been following the investigation of Set Blatter, of Nasser Khalifa, uh, some of the corruption items. But I'd like to look for a second on just a, an amnesty report that um, you guys actually highlighted a year ago in a press mm-hmm. release that you put out on January 8th, a little over a year ago, January 8th, 2019, failure to raise human rights during Pompeo visit to Gulf. And, and you specifically mm-hmm. point out here, and I think that you had a, um, uh, a statement that you did in Just Security, where you're an author. I'll get to the right mm-hmm. point if we have to cite it. But um, can you tell us about the labor conditions in Qatar with the building of uh, stadiums, $200 billion being put into this project. And there's a lot of people dying every few weeks over there. And maybe just give us an overview to start off the conversation of of what Amnesty's concerns are with the World Cup 2022 in Doha. Sure, absolutely. So so basically you have this system called the uh, Kafala system that exists in Qatar uh, and in various other uh, Gulf countries, but specifically focused on Qatar, uh, that is home to about 2 million migrant workers uh, that live in the country and oftentimes in appalling conditions and work in dangerous and appalling conditions. Uh, and so Amnesty has been tracking this broader abusive system that exists in the country uh, and has put a spotlight on it in particular because of the upcoming 2022 World Cup that's going to be hosted in the country. Uh, And the reason why we are going about putting an extra focus on this particular system is simply because of the fact that it has endured for a long time. Most people have turned or looked the other direction as Qatar has boomed uh, both in its infrastructure uh, prowess uh, and in its diplomatic presence on the world stage. Uh, it has put its it has put up an image as this sort of vibrantly changing country, welcome to all people. Yet it has two million of these individuals that actually form a large chunk of the country's population living in these appalling conditions, uh, in abject poverty, uh, uh, constantly under the threat of uh, either deportation or being uh, abused by the police. Uh, unjustly, um, and, and certainly working in conditions that are very dangerous, it would be completely unacceptable in the vast majority of countries, uh, certainly in the West, um, where many of these migrant workers have died uh, due to being exposed to extremely high temperatures. If you've ever been to Qatar and stepped off of a plane uh, or out of the airport in the summer, you will, and this is, you know, I'm a Houstonian from Texas, this is, this is a heat unlike anything you've ever experienced. And these people are out there all day long, toiling in the sun, in this heat, without any proper um, uh, medical support, uh, or certainly breaks uh, that it should be given to them to work in these conditions. And, and certainly uh, shifts, there's no shifts in many uh, cases where these folks are out there from morning to night. So you know, we've been doubling down on the fact that the Qatari government has done what we call in a sense sports washing where you host this big big event uh, and the whole world is looking at the gleaming stadiums you've built and the infrastructure and the trains and the skyscrapers and the palm trees and 
there's no emphasis as to how all of that got built within the past five to seven years. Uh, and so we're here documenting exactly how this is getting built, which is on the backs of these workers, two million of them. Uh, many of them have died under horrible conditions and live in horrible conditions, and we're not going to let that uh, go silent. Do we have an idea of how many um, deaths and injuries there have been? You know, there's been dozens of deaths. I have to get the most latest number. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a super easy uh, number to get. Certainly, it requires investigations from these human rights organizations uh, to uh, actually verify as to how these individuals died on the job. Uh, and, and that requires dealing with the Qatari government, which we do deal with. Um, but in any case, you've got migrant workers that have gone missing. You've got migrant workers that have been killed. Uh, and you've certainly got migrant workers who have had their wages withheld because they sometimes refuse to work in these horrible conditions after working in those conditions for a year. Uh, and there's many, many cases of migrant workers that haven't been paid for months and months uh, and are being forced to continue to work on the job. Um, even after they've agreed to go back to the job after sort of protesting that they weren't going to do the work because they weren't getting paid on time uh, and they still have their wages withheld. So this is a serious issue uh, that uh, has really taken deep root uh, in the country as they've busily prepared uh, to build out the infrastructure needed to host the World Cup. So I'd like to bring a uh, statement here from, now this is from a Bahraini, but he does talk about the, uh, the situation in Qatar, by name Hussein Abdullah, the executive director of Americans for Democracy and Human Rights in Bahrain. And he puts out a release last year on April 9th talking about the attempt by the International Labor Organization, the ILO, to uh, implement a system and work with Qatar on ameliorating these human rights abuses. And I'll quote from this, and I'd like to get your reaction. In November 2017, and then I think, and I'm going to um, add lib here, I think this is because of a lot of pressure that Amnesty was able to bear on Qatar, um, following increasing publicity of abuses and human rights violations directly linked to World Cup-related building projects, Qatari authorities announced they would cooperate with the ILO on reforming the kafala system and labor laws. As part of this effort, the Qatari government recently introduced a new labor law to abolish the kafala system and address some of the restrictions imposed by employers. However, the reform has failed to adequately solve these issues, and workers still face exploitation and ill treatment. Is this just uh, sports washing with the ILO, or labor washing in this case? It is. Um, you know, it, to, to, to go back to the very beginning as to how we got here, the, any of these major sporting organizations that want to host these events should look into the human rights record of the countries they're going to host the events in. So the fact that, that we've had a kafala system that has existed in Qatar, the fact that we have um, thousands of people in Bahrain in detention, political prisoners, some of them had nothing to do with actually uh, organizing politically, but just took part in some protests over the last several years or whatever, and are thrown in jail. And then you have the Formula One race that is held there annually. I mean, you've got these situations or boxing. I, I you know, recently spoke with somebody on how boxing matches are being held or all women wrestling matches are now being held in Saudi Arabia of all places. And, you know, they're doing this because they want, they know that the West um, speaks a language of sports or everybody speaks a language of sports around the world. Uh, and in particular, they'll pick sports that have a resonance in the West. If it's you know, football or soccer, as we call it in the U.S., 
uh, that resonates in the United States, particularly in Europe, um, or uh, hosting basketball tournaments or wrestling matches, uh, they want to project a different image uh, from the reality, which is extreme human rights abuses occurring across the board. Uh, and obviously, with relation, relation to Qatar, or certainly this comment on Bahrain, it's no different. These people know that there are abuses taking place. This system in Qatar has existed prior to the World Cup um, being uh, you know, hosted in the country and a construction being built around uh, for, the, for hosting the World Cup because Qatar has been in a construction boom for two decades now, and especially over the last 10 years. Uh, and, you've got, and you've got a situation where many people are dying, uh, in some cases hundreds a year, from heat stress and poor working conditions. So I think it just goes back to the very fact that these organizations have got to look at who exactly they're asking to host these events uh, and why they're asking them to host it. And should they even be, should they deserve that honor of hosting such a global event, uh, given the circumstances? So I'd like to move on a little bit to look at the intersection between um, international public corruption and the I think rank and system systematic uh, process of ignoring human rights abuses. So, like you said, if we go back to the time when the Qataris are actually starting their bid for the World Cup, I think the vote was in 2010, 2009, and 2010. They have two different rounds at, at the FIFA uh, Council that took place. But there's um, allegations of the Qataris spending hundreds of millions of dollars in bribing. FIFA officials. So, so yeah. it's, it's, it's not even just that, all right, let's have a human rights review of um, you know, the countries that are bidding to host international sporting events, even if that takes place. The potential hosts are lining the pockets, you know, greasing the wheels of the arbiters that are deciding where to put these international tournaments. So you know, a, a group like Amnesty isn't going to just look at the human rights abuses that are going on in the country. You're going to give a report card, and they're going to decide based on your input. I mean, I think it requires a broad alliance of international human rights organizations, but also anti-corruption organizations and those that are looking at the, the rot that's not just going on in sporting organizations, but also, dare I say, cultural organizations, those associated with history, academic associations. I mean, what kind of, um, uh, now you're, you're doing advocacy, right? You have the reporting side, which is, this is the bad things that are happening. But you, you just gave a policy solution, which was human rights violators should not be hosting international sporting events. What kind of um, plans does Amnesty have of finding allies and not just exposing the kafala system in Qatar or these other countries, mm -hmm. but really putting together an advocacy action plan to maybe trying to derail this event in 2022. Yeah, look, I, I think I, I gave you one. And have a couple more related to the U.S. government specifically because those are the folks I interface on a daily basis. And Qatar is an ally of the United States. Saudi Arabia is an ally of the United States. Most of these Gulf countries, like the UAE, are strong allies of the United States. Yet the United States looks the other direction or European countries look the other directions when it comes to some issues. Uh, and one of these issues is the one that we're talking about. It's hosting these sporting events. It's some of the corruption that goes on uh, around how these sporting events are chosen to be hosted in these countries. The bribery stuff, all of that that happened, 
I have less information about that and less to say, except that obviously it's a dirty process uh, and not good. <laughs> to say the least, and there needs to be some reforms. There needs to be some serious reforms to how that's conducted. But I mean, even taking a step back from that and just looking at the fact that um, you have uh, a United States ally, Qatar, uh, involved in these massive human rights abuses that are taking place in the open and that we've documented and other organizations have documented. Uh, one of many other abuses that they've they've done. Uh, and there needs to be pressure from the United States government, from members of Congress, from the administration, uh, from the Secretary of State on these countries to say, look, you want to actually change your image in the world? You, the, one, the best way to do it is to stop doing this, this two million people living in these horrible conditions, working in these horrible conditions, and dying in these horrible conditions. That's one of the easiest things that you can actually do. You have the money to do it. Uh, you need to have the willpower and the, uh, uh, the, the, the knowledge that this is important uh, for you to make this change. Um, we don't get that message often enough from the U.S. government specifically to these countries. And that's part of my job is to make sure that message starts to be sent. You know, uh, you mentioned the, the amount of money these countries throw at these PR campaigns, or, or, or I guess specifically towards FIFA, but I mean, in broader PR campaigns as to how they want to change their image here in the United States specifically, I know that for a fact. I mean, I go onto Capitol Hill, and I promise you, not maybe not immediately after I walk out of a meeting with a member of Congress or their staff, you've got the Qatari embassy following closely behind, or you've got <laughs> uh, the law firm that has been hired by the Qatari embassy or by the Qatari government to promote their image or change their image on Capitol or support the existing um, framework for which they operate uh, the, st the status quo, which is human rights abuses, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Saudis are known for doing this, believe me. Uh, the Qataris do this very effectively as well. Uh, and the UAE does this as well, too. Um, they want Americans to know their countries, specifically the UAE and Qatar, as having gleaming skyscrapers, massive shopping malls, fun things to do, uh, nice hotels, et cetera, and not all of this other stuff that happens. So uh, in terms of advocacy, we have to holistically change the way these countries uh, have been uh, promoting their image, which is a mirage. It's, it's, a, it's a false image because it, it uh, buries or hides the very serious human rights abuses that are taking place. The United States has leverage over these countries because they're allies and they rely on the United States. And I think we should use that leverage more often. And that's part of what we at Amnesty and me specifically have been looking to do to some degree of effect uh, on Capitol Hill. So uh, let's, and, let's, and let's talk the about US the policy. Government. Let's talk about the policy toolbox that the U.S. And, and even Europe to a certain extent has at its fingertips. What specific measures can the United States take against the Qatari government? And, and these other governments that we're talking about. But I, I got to tell you for a second, maybe you can disagree with me on this, why I think there's sort of like a two-tier approach as it relates to Qatar mm -hmm. versus the other Gulf Arab states. I don't want to be uh, accused of moral relativism here because I think everything that's going on over there, specifically if we look at a country-by-country -country basis, there's a lot of bad stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be in a position to defend MBS or MBZ or mm -hmm. uh, Althani or any of these other guys. But... When I look at countries like the Emirates and, and Saudi Arabia, 
there's at least a modicum of, you know, maybe we'll do a little bit of cooperation with the U.S.'s interests, and we can always debate what those interests are. But, man, after the Khashoggi incident, the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the, the Saudis get ready to start playing ball with us. And, I mean, I would argue with you that maybe there should have been some Magnitsky Act sanctions there against those involved, you know, maybe a persona non, a PNG on um, persona non grata for our listeners, on those who were mm-hmm. involved. But um, they at least tried to make a semblance of alms. But we've got Qatar now, you know, be, beyond being the place where the Taliban's negotiating a peace deal with the United States, mm-hmm. in bed with Al-Qaeda, they're hosting Hamas, they've got Hezbollah over there. Uh, they're you know cozying up with the Iranians. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but it seems like Qatar is is really a special blend of evil. Yeah, they have all the human rights abuses, not to minimize them or make a de minimis comparison, but they are literally buying up some American states, trying to get political influence on both the right and the left side of the map to be able to 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 hide behind their levers of influence in the United States. So that mm-hmm. when an amnesty report comes out, when you go on the Hill and you're up there and, and you're delivering this to members of Congress or members of the Senate, and you say, look at all these bad things, all of a sudden they follow up with a $500 million trade deal to say, well, we abuse people, mm-hmm. but here's some investment in your state's economy. I mean, it's really, it's pretty pernicious. So so, so let's get back to that question about, and, and like I said, please disagree with me if you think mm-hmm. that Cutter's a special blend of one way or the other. But uh, but uh, what policy options does the president and Congress have to hold Qatar to account? Yeah, so uh, I'll say that I agree with you that Qatar has its own special blend. Uh, but I also think Saudi Arabia does. I also think uh, the UAE does. I actually think that Qatar learned how to play this game in the United States from the UAE and from the Saudis. They haven't been playing it as long as those guys have. Let's be honest, they're doing a better job of it. And they're doing a better <laughs> job of it. They're doing a better... I mean, the Saudis have you know, royally messed up their perception because of Khashoggi uh, and then the women human rights... Royally messed up, that's a good uh, pun. Defenders. But, uh... Yeah, that is, right? Yeah, there you go. Uh, it, it, throwing their women human rights defenders in, in prison and, and, and subjecting them to hor- horrific human rights abuses while at the same time bizarrely making these reforms... Uh, with relations to women being able to drive and all this sort of stuff. So you have that whole situation. And the Qataris have been pretty smart as to how they go about uh, um, demonstrating that they are a regional power and that they've changed and that they're a player, right? Um, so so, so, so there, there is all of that that I just want to put out there. Um, the policy solutions actually begin uh, by publicly shaming these countries and not providing cover uh, and writing blank checks across the board uh, to encourage them to continue to do what they're doing. So, so in other words, business as usual. Um, if the president of the United States, uh, President Donald Trump, or the secretary of state were to come out and say, end the kafala system or make major reforms if you want to indeed have your image changed in the world, I mean, something along the lines of that, the Qataris would immediately realize that they have to actually make substantive changes, not cosmetic changes, so they don't get publicly shamed like that again, because that's to them a devastating blow. Uh, I mean, we know that as an organization, because whenever we will publicly tweet them, 
one of our reports, and this happens to the Bahrainis particularly, <laughs> they totally panic. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a tweet from our organization that has a lot of followers and a lot of, you know, we're, we're well known, but they don't want this kind of information getting out there that changes the narrative they've worked and spent a lot of money to build. So the first thing that can be done, which is the easiest, is getting members of Congress, Secretary of State, the White House, to actually publicly shame these governments for committing these human rights abuses, uh, and Qatar in particular. Um, I, I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is getting the Qatari ambassador in a congressional uh, office or, or, or someone that works for the embassy or these, or these uh, firms that they hire and say, hey, so-and-so member of Congress on this committee is going to propose a freeze in the sale of this ammunition or this military um, weaponry to the country unless this change is made immediately or unless these prisoners are freed immediately. Um, there's things like that that can be done uh, and that are done all the time um, to pressure these governments uh, to make changes, big or small, and, uh, and it works. And this is a leverage I'm talking about. This is not the United States talking to Russia or talking to China. This is the United States talking to Qatar where we have a huge military base and a presence that they would like to see remains for a long time. <laughs> and Felipe, Saudi Arabia we, and all of these. I don't mean countries. to cut us off. Uh -huh. This is a fascinating conversation. We've got about 15 seconds left. Give me your you know, 140 character pitch on amnesty and what it's going to do about Qatar in 2020. It, well, I, I'll say this. Amnesty is going to continue, continue to remain laser focused on the human rights abuses occurring in Qatar. And you're going to hear a lot more from the organization as to how the United States can, can make and put the necessary pressure on the Qatari government to make the changes they need to make. Felipe Nassif, the director of the Middle East, excuse me, the advocacy director for Middle East and North Africa, Amnesty International. It was a pleasure having you on. I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for having me and see you again soon. This is Greg Roman and Marilyn Stern here on Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia. Have a great week.